Okay, this is from uh, Ruth, chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man upstanding from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from the morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And when you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah, which thanks to the interweb is about a five gallon bucket. Uh, she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left out, gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, "Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you." Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. "The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz," she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvesters were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. You may be seated.
Is God really in control? That's a question we're going to look at this morning from the Bible. Uh, It's not uncommon for people to believe that he is in control of everyday circumstances. You know, uh, it's fourth down, there's five seconds left on the clock, and you're down by five points, and they throw the fade into the corner of the end zone, and the receiver goes up and catches the ball and wins the game. And he immediately drops to one knee and crosses himself. Or, or praises up to God. He gives God the credit for the fact that he just caught the game-winning touchdown, right? You've all seen this. What do you think? Did God make him catch the game-winning touchdown? Is he right to thank God? What about the guy who was defending him? Who gave up the game-winning touchdown and is going to have to go into the locker room as the goat, not the hero? Was God mad at him? What if that guy's a believer in God too? But you know, these questions of whether or not God is in control of everyday circumstances aren't just on on sort of trivial things like sports. Uh, Maybe some of you saw yesterday the newspaper article in the Oregonian of a a local family, an Oregon City family, who was just vacationing in Hawaii, and a huge wave took the dad and just pounded on him and broke his back almost killed him. They were barely able to save his life, and he's looking at paralysis now. I don't know the family. I don't know anything other than what I've read in the Oregonian in its brief article, but they, they mentioned, uh, or at least the newspaper reported, that, that they said, you know, we believe all things working together for good, a clear reference to Romans chapter 8, 28 in the Bible, and, and, and they referenced many small miracles they've already seen and how they're giving God thanks for this. They believe even in this tragedy, God is in control. Is God in control when people's backs get broken on a tropical vacation? This is the second in a four-part study of the Old Testament book of Ruth. And last week we saw that this short Old Testament account, it's it's a narrative. You just heard chapter 2 read a moment ago. It's a narrative. It's a story describing what happened in the lives of three people. Two women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, both widows in ancient Israel, and then another man by the name of Boaz. And in many ways, it, it reads as almost like just a, an individual feel-good story about three individual people who lived a long time ago in a far-off place. And yet we saw last week that it is about much, much more than that. The book of Ruth is about the return of God as the king of the universe because that's the story of the entire Bible, what God is doing to redeem the world that we broke through our sin, that the world might be restored, that you and I might have eternal life. That's the story of the Bible, and the book of Ruth actually plays a part of that. We saw that last week. It's really not a story just about these three people. It's about how God providentially worked in the circumstances of these three people to bring a about a king at a time when there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was what we saw last week. And I mentioned last Sunday, we're going to spend the next three Sundays looking at this four, uh, short four-chapter book by unpacking the story sort of thematically. So I, I hope you've been reading the book of Ruth. It's very short. If you haven't, I want to encourage you to start doing that this week for the next couple of weeks. Only four chapters. If you start at the beginning of the Bible, it's about the seventh or eighth book in, uh, so it's not that difficult to find. And you can read it four chapters, it's very short. And as we see that story unfold, several major themes 
come out of it. And that's what we're going to, how we're going to approach our study. The theme that we're looking at today is this dominant theme of what Bible scholars call God's providence. God's providence. It's a major theme in the Bible, and it is a major part of the message of the book of Ruth and what God is doing in this story. So with that in mind, let's jump right in, because I'm a jumper in her, okay? What we're going to do this morning is talk about how, what God's providence means and where it's taught in the Bible. Secondly, we're going to look briefly at different reactions people often have to the idea of God's providence. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the significance for us even today, how this relates to God's larger story and how it relates to us. So let's begin right away with a definition. When we talk about God's providence, what do we mean? This is kind of a working definition. It's a man-on-the-street definition. It's not one of these half-page-long scholarly definitions, okay? In a nutshell, this is what we mean when we talk about God's providence. It's the Bible's teaching that God is continually and actively involved in the events of everyday life in order to accomplish his purposes. That's what we mean when we say providence, God's providence. Uh, Just briefly, let me point out three important parts of this definition. God is continually and actively involved. The Bible very clearly paints a picture of God who is intimately involved in continuing to sustain the very universe he created. The Bible's picture is not one of the God of deism, you know, where God creates the universe, kind of winds it up like a clock, and then steps back and lets it run on its own, and he no longer has anything to do with it. God is continually, every moment, involved and actively involved in maintaining the laws that govern the universe. That's the picture that we get. We'll see that in a moment from Scripture. Secondly, God is involved in the events of everyday life everyday life. God is not just involved in what we might call the miraculous events, the supernatural events. God is actually involved, the Bible says, intimately in the ongoing details of everyday life, even the ones that seem just, quote-unquote, natural. And thirdly and finally, what is God's involvement for? What's it about? What is it doing? What is his aim and his goal? His aim to accomplish his purpose. And we've already seen last week what God's purpose is. It is the redemption of the world. That's where this train is headed. This train called human history. That's where it's going. He has a very clearly defined purpose. Where do we see this in the Bible? We actually see it all over the Bible. And it is all over this Old Testament book of Ruth. I want to look at just briefly four ways we see God's providence. There are actually more in the Bible, but for the sake of time, we'll just limit our brief survey here to four ways that we see God's providence at work in the Old Testament book of Ruth, as well as in other parts of Scripture. First of all, the Bible paints a picture of God's providence as being active in the physical world, in the created order, nature, the cosmos, the universe. God is providentially involved in that. We see this from the small scale all the way up to the large scale. Take, for example, uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. The famine in ancient Israel, that is the backdrop for this entire story. Look how the Bible words it. Naomi, it says, was in uh, Moab. She was already widowed, and she decided to return home to her home nation of Israel because she had heard, the Bible says, in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, after 10 years of famine, suddenly there is now more food in Israel. What was the famine caused by? Famine's caused by lack of rain. If it doesn't rain enough, the crops don't grow enough, and people don't have enough crop foods, plus then the animals can't eat enough, so they don't produce as much milk and meat. There's not enough food because it's not raining. 
and then eventually the rains return on a more consistent basis so that people are able to farm and, and raise their livestock and have food again. And the Bible very clearly credits God with the stopping of the rains and the starting of the rains. We see this at a larger scale too. So many examples of this, but just for the sake of, dis, um, of, of kind of quick survey, put at Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 in the New Testament. It says that Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Now, the Bible's not like a modern science textbook, but you see what it's saying? The whole universe has the form and the structure that it does, even at the cosmic scale, because God is the one who is actively holding it together. Now, in a modern scientific sense, we would say, at the large scale, gravity is what's holding it together. And the Bible would say, yeah, and God is behind gravity. That's the picture. What's gravity? How does it work? God is the driving force. He not only made it, he's continually sustaining it. And just one more, back down to a more personal level of literally dozens of scripture passages we could put up here. Psalm 104 says, speaking to God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate so that he may bring forth food from the earth. Again, very similar to this idea of the famine back in the time of Ruth. God is the one, the Bible says, who ultimately causes plants to grow so that humans and animals have food, even though we know that plants grow by natural processes. And they knew that back then too. We understand those processes in much greater detail now than they did back then. But even back then, they knew that plants grow. There has to be certain conditions, and even people who don't worship God are able to grow plants. But they recognized that God was behind the processes that cause even plants to grow. So God, the Bible says, is providentially involved in the physical world. But it's not just the physical world. God is also involved providentially in human decisions and in human choices. People make decisions, but God is providentially involved in that. We see this all over. Again, the book of Ruth. Here's just one example, jumping all the way to the end of the story. Uh, if you've been reading it, you know that the story ends with Ruth eventually marrying Boaz, which provides financial security and a lineage for Naomi and Ruth and their family. So it's a very good ending for them. And look at how the Bible describes it. The women said, once Ruth is now married to Boaz, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And we'll talk about what this redeemer thing was, more details in a couple of weeks. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. Now, when you read the story, there were two people who made choices that resulted in Boaz marrying Ruth. One was the closer redeemer by, kins by kinship. He had the right to redeem her and the family's property, and he chose not to. And that put the, the uh, decision in Boaz's lap, and he chose to do it. So it was really the decisions of two men that resulted in them being redeemed. And yet the Bible says the Lord was behind that. The Lord was behind that. Now the Bible's not, just to clarify, painting a strictly what we would call deterministic view of things. It's not like it's saying that human beings don't really make choices. The Bible's not saying free will is an illusion and, and God is really directing everything. What it is saying is that we, we make real choices and, and those choices do change the world around us. 
We make choices that can move us closer into the center of God's will or remove us further from God's will and God's blessing, and we will reap the consequences either way. Human choice is real, but but the Bible's teaching on God's providence is telling us that God will work in and through even human choices to accomplish his larger purposes. There's no choice I can make that will thwart God's will. He is providentially involved even in human choice. Thirdly, we see that God is providentially involved over the laws of nations and even the normal dictates of human culture. God is involved in the the affairs of nations, the laws of people, and the dynamics of human cultures. Uh, Again, toward the end of the book of Ruth, chapter 4, when Boaz says, as was customary in their culture, and again, we'll explain what this whole redeemer thing, it was called leveret marriage. It was a part of ancient cultures back in those days that we don't practice anymore. We'll look at that more closely in a couple of weeks from now. But they had to go uh, before the elders of the town and, and agree to this so that the marriage would be viewed as legitimate in the eyes of the community. It was a cultural um, practice that they had. And so they're doing that. Here's the elders of the town, and they're saying, we are witnesses that Boaz is going to marry Ruth. And then they say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. In other words, they're saying, may God bless this marriage. They expect God to be happy with and to bless this marriage that was built on a human institution, a cultural institution. And in fact, he does so. Later in verse 13, it says, the Lord gave Ruth conception and she bore a son. God blesses this human marriage that is built on a human cultural institution. It's a cultural institution we don't even have anymore. It seems weird to us today. But they did marriage in these certain cases of widows really different back then, and God uses it. He is sovereign over the way that that culture worked, even though our culture is different. And just one more example, so many examples of this. God is also seen to be um, providentially involved even over seemingly random or coincidental events, seemingly random and coincidental events. We just heard a moment ago, Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, read, where Ruth goes out to uh, glean from the harvesters. It was basically all that the working poor, like, like Ruth, could do, is go in behind people who had real jobs and just try to pick up some of the scraps that were left over and try to live off those scraps. And the Bible says she just happened to arrive at the field of Boaz, not knowing who he was, and it turns out he was part of the clan of Elimelech. In other words, he was a distant relative of her mother-in-law, and that put him uniquely in a position to help her out in a way that most people wouldn't have been able to, even if they wanted to. I mean, it was a really nice set of circumstances for her, but from her perspective, she didn't know that. From her perspective, she just happened to land in the right field, but as from the perspective of the narrator, from our perspective as readers, we realize, just as we saw at the end there, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. God was providentially working in what appeared to us to simply be coincidental or happenstance circumstances. Very interesting verse in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Casting lots was roughly the uh, modern equivalent of rolling dice. It was seemed to be a kind of a random event that took human decision out of it and, and a way they would sort of check with the fates or the gods or whatever. And the Bible says that it, many times God will use even things that to us seem random to bring about his purposes. So God, according to the Bible, is providentially involved, that is, actively 
involved in the operations of the physical world. He's actively involved in human choices. He's actively involved in human cultures and laws, and he's even actively involved in random circumstances. That's what the Bible tells us about the doctrine of God's providence. Now, how do you respond? How do we respond to that? Even as you hear me describing this, as we read some various um, statements in the Bible, and once again, these are just the tip of the iceberg, there are dozens and dozens of similar statements that talk about God's providential involvement in everything. We probably have a variety of different reactions to that, even in this room. And there are two equal and kind of opposite extreme reactions to the doctrine of God's providence that are, I think, pretty common, but maybe not quite so helpful. And it's worth looking at each of them briefly in turn before we talk about the significance of this teaching of the Bible in our lives. The first kind of, maybe more one end of the spectrum, one uh, extreme of the way that we can react to the, the teachings of the Bible on God's providence is simply to deny it. Um, it's just to deny it. I, I don't believe it. That, that this is kind of an ancient, sort of pre-scientific way of looking at life. People just didn't understand the way things worked back then, and so everything they didn't understand, they just attributed to God. But now we understand the, the inner workings of so many things in life that we don't need to resort to God anymore to explain it. It's a very common view. And growing up in this culture, it's very understandable. Because we do, thanks largely to modern scientific investigation, understand the inner workings of the physical world in much greater detail than anybody ever has before at any point in history. Consequently, when we find the conditions that brought about a certain effect, the cause of an effect, we think we fully explained it. Let's go back to that famine for a moment. Where did the famine come from? The lack of rain. Where did the lack of rain come from? Well, we know where lack of rain comes from even though it's still hard to predict with certainty. <laughs> we know what causes a lack of rain. It's high-pressure systems, right? High-pressure systems forming in the atmosphere. That just happened through the natural processes of the sun, putting energy in the atmosphere. I mean, we can explain the mechanical processes that cause high-pressure systems and therefore a lack of rain, and therefore, at times and in places, famines. So at what level can we say God is behind that? To assume that God is behind that is just a... It's just a belief, right? I mean, there's, there's no actual grounding for that belief. Whereas if we assume God is not behind it, that's just a solid fact. We know God is not behind it. That's how many people respond to the idea of God's providence. And that is an understandable point of view, being raised in a scientific community like we are. However, I do think it's worth pointing out that whether or not we believe God is actively working in a natural event or not actively working in natural events, either way, both of those are actually beliefs, not facts. Here's what I mean. I, I will fully admit to anybody, I cannot prove in any sort of empirical, scientific sense that God is behind, say, the force of gravity. There's no experiment you could do to prove that. Although, interestingly, there's no experiment you could do to prove that he isn't either. What we can do with science is define gravity actually in pretty precise terms, which lets us do cool things like launch spacecraft to other planets and really, really cool stuff, and I start to geek out, but that's not what this morning is about, okay? We understand what gravity is and how it works pretty well. Now, whether there's anything behind it, though, is not something that science can tell us. So to assume that there is nothing behind it is an assumption. It's a belief. 
In prepping for this morning, I ended up at all places on one of the websites run by my alma mater, the University of California at Berkeley. Can I get big go bears on three? One, two, oh, you guys won't do it, never mind. Bunch of beavers and ducks around here. I won't even try. <laughs> anyway. Having graduated from the University of California at Berkeley, not exactly a palace of conservative evangelical theology, I don't often get to quote from my alma mater in a sermon on Sunday morning, so I'm really excited about this. This is a bellwether moment for me today, okay? I ran across a website this week that's a science education website. It's just educating people about teachers and, and high school students and college students and so on about the basics of how science works. It's run by uh, the scientists at UC Berkeley. And they're talking about all the great things science does, how it works, how it operates, what the method is, all the great things that have been discovered with science. And my eye was drawn at one point of this website. They said, what are the limits of science? And I said, well, that's interesting. I'm going to go see what the scientists say the limits of science are, and they're not operating from a theological uh, or belief in God standpoint. They listed four things that science doesn't do. Here's one of the four. It directly pertains to us. This is a quote directly off their website. Science doesn't draw conclusions about supernatural explanations. Now, pause there just before we read further. Notice the language. They chose it carefully. They're not saying science rules out supernatural explanations. They're saying science doesn't draw conclusions one way or the other about, for example, whether God is behind gravity or whether God was behind the famine in Ruth's day. Science can't tell us that. They explain. Do gods exist? This is their language. Do supernatural entities intervene in human affairs? These questions may be important, but science won't help you answer them. Questions that deal with supernatural explanations, their emphasis, are by definition beyond the realm of nature and hence also beyond the realm of what can be studied by science. It's a very fair and I think completely accurate statement. And so the point is simply this. If you're inclined to think that a natural explanation of something that takes place in the physical world proves that God was not involved, it's well worth considering the fact that that conclusion isn't a known fact. It's a belief, just as much as a belief that God is ultimately behind it and that he was involved. So immediately denying God's providence is at least worth rethinking. Now, there's another reaction we can have that's probably clear on the other end of the spectrum that maybe more Christians on the whole are potentially guilty of, and that is not only believing in God's providence, but perhaps becoming over-obsessed about it, becoming over-obsessive with God's providence. What do we mean by that? Basically, this is when I, when I get to the place in my Christian life where I'm trying to figure out who God is and what he wants of me and what he's doing in my life. And when I look for the answers to those questions, I mainly go, go to the events of my life. And I try to discern what God is up to. I try to figure out what he's doing. And then I try to infer from that what he's telling me. Now, the Bible is very clear. God speaks to us. He speaks to us clearly. He tells us exactly who he is, exactly who we are, and he tells us overall what he's doing in our lives, and he tells us that right here in the Bible. But so often, as Christians who believe in God's providence, we cannot necessarily go to the Bible to get the answers we want, because sometimes the Bible isn't as specific as the question I'm asking right now, and so instead, we go to the events of our lives themselves and say, okay, how do I sort of read the tea leaves here? How do I line these events up to figure out what God is doing and what he wants me to do? For example, 
Uh, if I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue this course of action, I'm going to you know, go look for a new job or, or something like that, and, and I'm, I'm praying that I will get what I view to be a positive outcome. Somebody offers me a job, better hours, more money, you know, that'd be great. And then it happens, and I say, yes, God answered my prayers, right? That must be evidence that God wants me to keep going down this road. Maybe, maybe not. Is that proof? Or vice versa, I, I start going and looking for something that's better, and I don't come up with anything that to me seems better, so that must be, we would say, God closing the door, quote-unquote. And so therefore, I, I sort of discern the will of God based on the circumstances in my life. Why did God allow this horrible, awful thing to happen to me or to somebody that I love? We want to make sense of it when bad things happen, and yet we believe God is providentially in control. We want to make sense. We want to understand why God, and, and are, are you just trying to teach me patience? That's probably the default Christian response, right? When, when things in my life are bad, and I keep praying they would get better, and they're not getting better, but I believe God's in control, so he must be teaching me patience. I've got to know a reason. I've got to try to discern what God is saying to me on the basis of the circumstances of my life. But friends, as we've said, God speaks to us very clearly through the Bible. He does not speak to us very clearly through the circumstances of our lives. And when we start to lean on our interpretation of the circumstances of our lives to understand what God is saying to us, then we're probably getting off the rails a little bit. A couple of thoughts and follow-up to this. First of all, God is providentially involved in the circumstances of our lives, but God's providential involvement is a lot easier to detect when you look back on it later in general than it is at the moment. See, what I mean by this is it's, it's a lot easier for me to look back on what I think God was doing in my life 20 years ago because I have a much broader perspective now than it would have been to determine exactly what he was doing there at the time and in the moment. Because I, I just have such a limited perspective. Uh, many times before, the providence of God has been compared to uh, somebody doing needlework, like needlepoint. If you've ever seen somebody creating this beautiful um, needle kind of stitch um, picture of something, but on the backside, like it's a mess, right? You've ever seen the backside of one of those? There's just all these crisscrossing spaghetti threads all over the place, and it's kind of a mess. And in a lot of ways, that's a picture of what the Bible is saying. God is painting this picture, this huge long story of the redemption of the world, and our lives are a part of that. But from our perspective now, we're only looking at the backside of that. We see these little threads going here and there, and it's kind of a mess, and we're trying to guess what they are, but it's not until we are with him in eternity that we will finally understand all the threads of our lives and how he wound them together. So even in retrospect, I don't get the full picture, not in this life. I'll never get the full picture of what God is up to in the circumstances of my life. You see, that's what the book of Ruth is all about. And we saw this last Sunday, right? The book of Ruth is about King David. That's what it was about in this cultural moment. King David, from a perspective of looking back in history on his kingship, and how God was providentially working through the circumstances of three totally nondescript people, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. He was working through their lives to bring about the rise of King David at a time when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. 
And ultimately, it's about how even through King David, God brought about King Jesus, God in the flesh, who is the ultimate king of the universe, who will restore everything because that's God's plan. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. But guys, here's the point. Everything I just said in the last, like, 60 seconds, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz were clueless to all of it. They understood None of it. They didn't know God was working through them to bring about the, the, the rise of Israel's greatest king, much less that that rise of that king would lead to the coming of God's eternal Messiah, Savior. They had no clue. Ruth had no idea she would be the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, much less that she would be incorporated into the lineage of God's eternal Savior, I mean, good night. They likely didn't even live to see King David sitting on his throne. And they certainly didn't live long enough to see Jesus be crucified and resurrected. At the time, Ruth was just trying to take care of herself and her mother-in-law. That's all she was doing, as best she knew how. And the significance of what God did in and through the lives of these people is much more clear to us because we know the larger picture and we know God's larger story. And there's a lesson here, I think, for us, even today as Christians, as we interact with the ideas of God's providence. And the lesson is this. If I'm a Christian, my life too is part of this larger story. But... I should probably have very, very modest expectations when it comes to figuring out exactly what an infinite God is up to in my life right now. Because he's infinite and I'm not. He's able to track a billion things at once and I can barely keep track of my schedule this week. Much less why he has ordained every good thing as I see it or bad thing as I experience it in my life. We do know that our lives are not about us. The Bible makes that clear. It is about God keeping his promise to redeem the world. Your life as a Christian and my life is part of that plan. That much is clear. But what his exact plan is for me and why exactly he has allowed or ordained this to happen or that to happen, much harder to nail down. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. But we do know that God is providentially at work. That leads me to the third and final thing we want to talk about this morning. First, what is God's providence? Secondly, how do we tend to respond to God's providence? And if those are two unhelpful ways, if it's not helpful to just deny it, and maybe it's not helpful to become too obsessed about it, what's a healthy approach to understanding God's providence? In conclusion, I want to suggest four things that may help us with that. And I'm drawing a lot of this from the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 8. In fact, the greatest... Um, most often quoted verse in the Bible related to the providence of God is probably Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I bet three quarters of you have it memorized, word for word. For we know that in all things, God is working together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. God is working together for good in all things. Even when death comes, even when I break my back, even when I face financial ruin, even when there's famine and disaster, God is working for good? How do we understand that? We can get at least four things from the Bible in general, from Romans chapter 8 in particular. First of all, God is at work in all things. He is. It's very clear in Romans 8, is it not? That's why we quote it. 
We know that in all things, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the in-between stuff, the I don't know stuff, I do know that God is sovereignly and providentially at work. This means that God is at work in the bad things. Think of the book of Ruth. God is at work in famine and a shortage of food for the ancient Israelites because they had violated his covenant. God is sovereign in the book of Ruth over the deaths of Naomi's family, her husband and her two sons, her two adult sons. Even though as the narrative unfolds, we're not told the specifics, but it seems very clear that they simply died of natural causes. I mean, God didn't just strike them with lightning bolts. Nobody murdered them. They just died, presumably from natural causes. And yet it's very clear in the narrative that God is providentially involved in that bad reality and the the destitute position of widowhood that that put Naomi in where she has no family line which was very important in a clan-based society we don't have that but they did back then and it was also uh, put her in a very financially precarious situation God was sovereign he was working over all of that providentially involved in the bad things but he's also providentially involved in the good things Boaz's generosity which we heard read a moment ago, how she, Ruth happened to end up in Boaz's field and he ends up so generously providing that their initial fears of financial ruin are totally wiped away. They've got an abundance. God is involved in that. God is involved in his provision of security and a future for these women through the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. God is at work in all things. That's what we can know for certain according to the Bible, whether we understand it right now or not. Secondly, that God is a good and just and loving God. Romans chapter 8 concludes just a little bit below uh, verse 28 that we're looking at now. It concludes with this statement about God and how we can trust his hand in everything. He says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter how much bad calamity God providentially ordains to come in my life, I may never understand why and I may never understand the what fors and where it's going to lead in this life, but one thing I can know, the Bible says beyond a shadow of a doubt, nothing will separate me from God's love. One reason I know for sure that is not behind his providential involvement in bad things in my life is that he no longer loves me. That's not an option. The Bible takes that one right off the table. Nothing in the world could separate you from the love of a God who would come be, to become man and who would suffer a horrific death on your behalf so that you would not have to suffer hell for eternity. That's the kind of love he has and nothing can take it away. So we can know first that he is at work in all things. Secondly, that whatever he's up to, he is good, he is just, and he is loving. Thirdly, we know the ultimate end to which he is working, and that is the redemption of the world for his glory and for our good. You see, God has not written in the Bible all the detailed reasons of why he has allowed chronic pain that we don't have a cure for to be part of my family situation. We don't understand everything that, that has led God to ordain that. 
Now, looking back, we can see how he has used it to make us much deeper and much more committed people. So he has brought good from it already. But we don't understand the whole point. But you know what? Here's what we do know. We do know where this train is headed. And we know we're on it. And this train is headed to the redemption of the world. That's the story of the Bible. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. God is redeeming a sin-cursed and broken world for his glory. And he's been very clear about that. There is no mystery about what the ultimate purpose is behind everything that happens, even though God doesn't explain how every individual detail of our lives fits into that purpose on this side of eternity. That's what God's work in the life of Ruth was all about. That is so clear from reading the story. They didn't understand, but we can now see how they were part of this larger story, even though they at the time could not. Well, yeah, you say. I mean, great for Ruth, but that's like, I'm nobody special. She was this cool lady that, that got a whole book of the Old Testament named after her. She, she got incorporated into the lineage of God's Messiah. I mean, that's an amazing privilege for her. I'm not going to be incorporated into the lineage of the Messiah. I'm nobody special. I'm not involved like she was in God's great plan. Well, it's partly true. You're certainly not going to become one of the ancestors of Jesus because he already lived a long time ago. His ancestors are done. So you're not going to be part of the lineage of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are part of something far more significant than that. You're part of his family. You are his brother, his sister, adopted by God the Father into the family of God because of what Jesus has done. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior... God says, not only do I wipe out your sin on the basis of Christ's sacrifice when you trust him fully for the cleansing of your sins, but I adopt you into my family. You are now part of the family, sons and daughters of God, and your life and my life is a part of the exact same grand story that Ruth and Naomi's and Boaz's were. Except we know more of the story than they knew. We are in a much more privileged position to be able to live the life of the Redeemer whom they only looked forward to someday, but we now look back on in history. He has come, he's lived, he died, and he rose again. And we can experience that resurrection life now so that other people around us, through us, can understand who Jesus is and join his family too. What greater thing could you possibly be part of? Who cares whether or not your list is, name is on a list of genealogical descendants? We are part of the family of God with an eternally valuable mission. And that leads me to one final conclusion that we know about God's providence. We know what the promised end or result of this is. While I know God's ultimate destination, and I may not know how the details of his work in my life relate to that destination... I know he's good, I know the destination, and here's the other thing. I know what the destination is going to mean for me. I know what the destination is going to mean for me. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, just 10 verses earlier, in Romans eight twenty-eight says this, I consider the sufferings of this life are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
Not even worth comparing. Now, when people are in pain and they hear a statement like that from the Bible, sometimes it's very offensive because it feels like the Bible's like minimizing our pain or our suffering. But friends, I want to encourage you, that in no way minimizes pain or suffering. The man who wrote that, the Apostle Paul, had experienced enormous amounts of very deep pain and suffering. He's not minimizing pain. You know what he's doing? He's maximizing our view of our eternal reward. The problem is not that we don't understand our pain. We do understand our pain. We live with it. The problem is we don't really understand how great God's eternal reward is. And so we actually think that there's no way God could ever bring about something that would make this pain I'm dealing with worthwhile. But friends, if that's what you believe, then you either haven't read or you don't believe the Bible. God says, picture the worst imaginable pain you can experience in this life. And if you are faithful to your trust in Jesus Christ, when you get to eternity and you experience what life is going to be like in the very presence of your maker, the one who is the wellspring and the source of life, in comparison to how great that is, no matter how great our pain is, we'll say, oh, that was so not even worth comparing. Not because the pain is small, because the glory of God is so big. These are the promises God gives us as his people about his providential work in our world and in our lives. So what do we do with it? He encourages us to focus on God's master plan. Recognizes the book of Ruth is so strongly trying to get us to see that God is a God who is faithful to keep his promises. He promised a king, a king came when it looked like none could come. He promised an eternal king, which sounded impossible. An eternal king has come. And now he has promised us that an eternal life like none you can ever imagine is coming if you continue to trust that that king will keep his promises. The book of Ruth is calling us to trust that God will keep his promises, but we've got to understand the big picture. We may never understand the details of why God has ordained a particular pleasant or perhaps extremely unpleasant thing in our lives. But we know he's working. We know he's good. We know where this train is headed. And we know it will be good in the end. And thank God we can trust him for that. Father, I thank you for your providential involvement in our lives. We would like so much to understand more of why you do what you do, why you ordain or allow what you ordain and allow. And sometimes it's maddening in the moment that you haven't necessarily explained all the details of our lives to us. But you've explained that you are good. You've demonstrated that you are a faithful promise keeper more times than we can count. I pray, Father, for the members of our church. Unite us together as a family of people who trust you, who understand that there is more going on than we can perceive in the moment. And even though we don't always understand what it is, we know who is in control. We know your track record. We know your character. And we know your ultimate end. And so, God, make us a faithful people. I pray especially for those in this room right now who are not Christians, who are seeking to understand who you are and, and maybe how to understand pain and suffering, I pray that you would help them to see your eternal cosmic plan and that you would draw them into a relationship with you as their God and their Savior. And Father, for those who are hurting this morning and struggling to understand your role in our lives, I pray that you would lift our eyes up. 
that you would take men and women who are your people and that you would inflame our hearts, lift our minds with a picture of your goodness and your ultimate purposes and give us the trust that we sometimes just can't muster on our own, enough to trust that you are in control and to stay faithful to what you've called us to. And through that, would you use us to transform the lives of hundreds right here in our community that we will see tomorrow morning at school and at work and everywhere we go. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.